instead of getting all those awards and accolades, I took off to the south of France and studied painting in a small studio in Aix-en-Provence. And that rocked my world. Because I went from these, you know, six foot canvases, stretching my own work, gessoing, putting it all together, to, you know, small boards, standing in a wheat field, oil, which I had never painted with before, painting oil paints of, you know, wheat fields in Mont Saint-Victoire. And I was not prepared for that. Well, hello and welcome to Architecture, Design and Photography. Today we are speaking with Tima Bell. Tima transitioned from bohemian painter to architect who initially specialized in hospitality design and has subsequently embraced local demand for production studios. His firm has grown from about five in its founding to about 50 currently. Born in New York City and raised in Venice Beach, California and Peaks Island, Maine, he studied at Rice University, BFA 1990 and Southern California Institute for Architecture, MARC, in 1999. His passion of art led him to the practice of architecture as a launching point to explore the three-dimensional space within his own paintings. He's an AIA associate and has received an AIA scholarship as well as two AIA Hospitality Design Awards. Additionally, he is the recipient of both the Individual Boutique 18 Design Award in 2013 and the Boutique 18 Design Restaurant Award in 2012. So give it up for Tima Bell. Tima Bell, welcome to Architecture, Design, and Photography. Thank you. Been looking forward to it. We have a fair amount in common. Uh, first <laughs> yes, of all, initials, uh, occupations, education, a lot of stuff. Uh, last name. Last name, not to mention anything. <laughs> so are we related by any chance? Where did you grow up and where is your family from? Uh, so I, um, I grew up in Venice Beach uh, primarily, although yep. uh, when my uh, parents were divorced, actually before that, but ultimately when my parents were divorced, my mom moved to a home on Peaks Island, Maine. Wow, did she and, still uh, live there? No, she passed away. Yep. Uh, but I definitely spend, uh, I think, from age six um, all the way through ninth grade, uh, at least half of the year. Uh, went to King Middle School in Portland, Portland High School. Uh, wow. But eventually, high school, I, I wanted to be in California, so I came back uh, and went to Santa Monica yep. High School. Um, wow. How, uh, how, did, how do you feel about your time in Maine? What is what has it done for you? How has it influenced you? <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty interesting. Venice... Uh, beach where I grew up is uh, is about as urban of a beach as you can get. Uh, it's yeah. not you know you get the beautiful nature of the beach, but beyond that, it, it is an urban environment and it's all of Los Angeles. Growing up in Maine, especially on an island off the coast, was wonderfully rural while being urban adjacent. Uh, it's right. one of the you know I think at, at the age that I grew up there, it was very difficult. Um, I'm in my late forties, so this is pre-internet. And Maine in the pre-internet was not the most sophisticated, um, at least not where I grew up. So there was a, a lot of uh, bullying and, and, um, and kind of a rougher mentality uh, surrounding, you know, the Americanology of Budweiser and Bruce Springsteen and all that kind of feeling. Um, and I don't think I helped it by being a very active and avid Lakers fan. Ah. <laughs> uh, walking around with a yellow satin jacket and, uh, uh, you know, catching the ferry to Portland every morning was probably not the best way. I was quite the antagonist to that point. Uh, so but, you, were, you were really pumping up the from away. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's, the funny thing is, is I actually was 
I actually loved being a Mainer. I loved that aspect of my life. I think yep. Maine is, uh, I think the people are remarkably, um, they're down to earth, they're honest. Uh, I find, um, I found that obviously once Portland and the internet started adding some sophistication, the level of artisans that Maine produces suddenly came to the forefront. And man, coming back in my later years, you just recognize the exquisite beauty. Um, as a teenager, it was really tough because you know, you can only fight back so much, but as an adult, when you don't have to do that and you can just enjoy, I mean, Peaks Island is beautiful. Portland is beautiful. The winters in Maine, I think are some of the best winters that you can have anywhere because of the sort of sharp crystal clarity that you get. I mean, a winter in Berlin is gray. A winter in Maine is just, it's like, it's like looking in a, looking through a diamond. It's so right. beautiful. Yeah. So, it's a, you know. I, I went to architecture school in Michigan which is ah. like Berlin. <laughs> right, it's great. It's very great. Oh, yeah. it's horrid. Yeah. So bad. I mean, I went, I went to architecture school at Cyark, so I was back in Los Angeles at that point. Okay, yeah, you had a little more, um, little more sun, a <laughs> little more yeah. warmth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, how much time did you spend in the World War II ruins out there on Peaks Island? That was great. Battery steel. Some yeah. of the first uh, underage drinking moments of my, of my <laughs> healthy beer intake. Uh, no, it was incredible. I mean, it was when I first grew up there, there was a commune that lived behind Battery Steel called Star Labs. Oh, um, and they would grow all kinds of food and they had all these hippies walk around and they were half nude all the time. And then later in my teenage years, it just became the spot to go and get drunk and light a bonfire or put fireworks off. But even to this day, when I head back to the island, I, I'll climb around. And interestingly enough, I did a study on all of the forts of Maine, because sailing, we would go to Fort George's in the middle of the harbor. Yep. Um, and then I spent time climbing around uh, Little Diamond and Big Diamond. So, I mean, yeah, it was an integral part of, of, of growth. I mean, those Star Wars action figures at those uh, World War II installations was awesome. Right. That's, how much uh, how much exploring were you able to do on Cushing, just south of Peaks there? Uh, you know, uh, I've only been to Cushing... Hmm one time so yeah. I, I didn't do a lot of exploration but it's always been that sort of imperial fort in the distance off the back shore you know because it kind of juts out right at the yep. corner yeah, yeah. but I, I didn't actually get to that i think one time in my life and it was for a clam bake so i didn't really get to yeah. explore quite as much but definitely pumpkin knob and long even house everyone you know i went to house which was pretty special yeah um yeah so yeah we uh sure i should say this publicly but we've we've been on to uh cushing island and explored the forts and it was they're they're the best ones in casco bay but yeah you have you're to, not supposed to right it's private uh you just have to know someone that you know <laughs> gets you, you on um so but yeah it, yeah it's i weird. don't the, i think the fort george is public it, Ah, but you have to get to the streets which means you have to cross right. someone's land to you know so it's right. It's a whole weird thing, but well, yeah. growing up Fort George's, I mean, you know, again, the beautiful thing about growing up in the late seventies and, and eighties is there was very little monitoring. So we yeah. would just sail out to Georgia's, throw anchor and go on thing. You can't do that anymore. Now there's, you know, there's Coast Guard security. They're, they're looking for, you know, a stopped well, we, boat. We go the, out there all the time. Really? Still? Yeah. They, climb they up let, and down. Oh yeah. They let people out there now. Wow. Yeah, we have a boat. We'll we'll go out, and that's one of our stops that my two boys love to see. They love to go and see like Battery Steel and 
they're dying to get back on Cushing, but I keep telling them like, yeah, we're gonna have to go in the middle of winter or something now. And so, yeah. It's how, little, how old little, are your boys? There's another uh, comparison. I got two boys as well. Nine and twelve. Yeah, mine too. Whoa. <laughs> mine okay. just turned thirteen. <laughs> well, and and to make the uh, make the relationship a little deeper, I used to have hair just like yours, but mine got a little too thin up front and a little too you. straggly, and I, I just couldn't pull it off anymore. So I had I to. Hear you. This is all coming off after Halloween. I've decided I'm going to pull a John Wick and then it's gone. That's oh, it. Nice. There you go. <laughs> so uh, your your background uh, professionally, it sounds like, first was more of an interest in painting that transitioned into more of a focus on design within architecture. Can you walk me through that and, and kind of hit the points that really uh, are things that have deeply influenced you and and persuaded your ways of thinking and, and, and what you believe about what you do and why you do it? Sure. Um, it, it's going to be a little long, I'll, but I'll, I'll kind of lead you through the, the process. I'll just of, cut you uh, off when there. it gets boring. Okay. Uh, I started off uh, going to Rice University and I was actually an opera singer. Um, oh, wow. Okay. I was, uh, yeah, I had made uh, some all-state achievements in high school. Um, got you got recruited me there. To a I'm not an opera singer. <laughs> there you go. A, a number of music schools came after me, and, and the Shepherd School of Music at Rice University just seemed incredibly appropriate, the size of the school. Didn't really worry about Houston. I'm always exciting. Uh, I've, I've been a traveler my whole life. So, um, But after one year of opera, uh, I realized that that commitment was fully, uh, like you couldn't do anything else with your life. And I, I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to explore all, a lot of opportunities. So I started studying painting, uh, drawing and creative writing and, and literature. I've always been an avid reader. Hmm. And uh, in the process of, of beginning the painting and drawing, I realized I, I really enjoyed the action of it and the thought process that came behind it. Uh, I have this kind of brain that is wonderfully creative. I love making things, but at the same time, I really love the process and understanding the process and the psychology, the physical, all the different aspects of, of creation, of making things. Hmm. And um, Rice before was wonderful. You, before yeah. you go too far there, walk me through, this is something that really interested me, uh, people's concept of what creativity actually is and how it works. And, and the psychology of it, how it works for you. Can you can you explain it in a way that almost seems like you're going way too deep and like it's hard to understand, but how it makes sense to you, if you know. Sure. That. I mean, look, I actually just went to a journal workshop and I had a great quote, which is everybody is creative, but not everybody's an artist. Mm, um, okay. And I thought that was really interesting because that, that's uh, the best sort of description I can give. The creativity aspect is something we all have. Right. Um, uh, putting, you know, stacking a block on top of another block, doing a sketch, a drawing, a doodle, writing something, that's creative, right? The, for me, the artist portion of it is really understanding where it's coming from and, and how it's put out there and why it's put out there and being mm -hmm. able to explain it. Um, <clears throat> not everybody falls in that category. I mean, Basquiat is not a great discusser of his work, right? He didn't have wonderful um, uh, memoirs or a diary or even conversations. He just did. So his creative endeavor was was purely kind of straight out of the primal source. Hmm. He's a great creator. I think we all can be great creators. But for me, the artist is actually somebody who can engage 
with that creation. Um, mm. And that, that's sort of the tact I took in learning. Um, putting paint to paintbrush um, does take a certain sense of technique and there's a little bit of learning involved, but frankly, anybody can put paint to paintbrush. So right. um, I thought that quote at the journaling workshop was pretty appropriate. And I had never heard it again? so distinctly. Um, uh, anybody, everybody is creative, but not everybody is an artist. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I've been working and struggling with that concept for a while, and and people have always in in speaking with me when I've interacted with them for a while, I've said, "Yeah, you're really creative." That's, been, and I don't quite know what that means, and I'm I'm not, I'm, I'm not really. I don't consider myself an artist because like you're saying the 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 act of of creativity with a, a vision to actually say something that that's more of a, a concept of an artist to me that there okay. there's a a desire to say something that that uh uh reveals the truth of their own experience that is the truth that we all connect to. If an artist can really uh, take that and communicate it through a creative means, that's that to me is artistry, if, if you will. Sure. I, I, but a beautiful thing of that, it's not reliant on one medium. That's right. where the artistry comes in, because you right. can be an artist within a kitchen and, and make an incredible meal that I find that artistry as much oh, yeah. as any sense of creation. I think right. creation with a purpose is a great a, a great line anyway. I mean, it's a pretty, you know, we're talking about esoteric values, so they're they're pretty broad in in their approach. Um, yeah, but I I think if someone can delve into those things and and wrestle with them, that that's uh, it it gives you uh, not credibility, but it gives you longevity to what you're struggling with primarily, yep. in my opinion. It it, it also allows of, for change. Right, that's a, right. a big part growth. because growth you're, you're more so than change. Well, excuse me, that's absolutely correct. Yes, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, sorry, that's that uh, that makes total sense. It allows for growth because if you're not in that in that spirit of of understanding what you're doing, the growth doesn't really uh, happen uh, in the same way. Right. Um, yeah, it seems that you can you can struggle with uh, something for for an amount of time, and you can work with it, create creatively and you can get to a point where you kind of master a technique and become something through that but until you you really uh until you kind of break yourself on that it's not until that point that the growth happens and that deeper understanding and the true the true light of it all shines through on that other side because yeah I, I watch that in and even in like athletic endeavors and everything else with people, they can come to a point where they grasp it and, and can do it really well. But it's not until they contemplate the whole thing at a much deeper level that they start to understand why they do it, what it brings to them and what they can communicate about their life through that thing. Yeah. It then becomes this much more meaningful thing that has that longevity to it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and and can can alter specific growth. I mean, Neil Young for me is someone like you look at how his music kind of morphed and shifted and grew uh, throughout throughout the periods. And he had some horrible music in the '80s uh, that you know was difficult to listen to, but he kept 
Uh, I don't know if you saw recently, there was a Geffen documentary where Geffen actually sued Neil Young because the music was so horrible. And, <laughs> and Neil Young said, you know, you're not, you know, you're paying me to create. What I create is not up to you. I just thought that was just remarkable that he was able to stand on such solid ground as an artist to say, look, it may suck and it may be something terrible, but you're not paying me for hits. You're right. paying me for my creativity. Right. Um, and if you can't do that or don't want to do that, then I'm not the right artist for you to, to back. Right. You know, and we've seen, you know, Young from the early, you know, kind of twangy country from, you know, Crosby, Crosby Stills, Nash and Young, all the way to like the Dead Man or the later stuff now that he does. And it's really an incredible oeuvre of work with some really horrible periods in between. And that is right. a really beautiful artistic path. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That Dave Chappelle has a line that, yeah. that is similar to that, where it's something like he was telling a story where he was just absolutely bombing. I think because he was too high and upset <laughs> and he is like, you guys aren't getting your money back because I don't get paid for the successful attempt. I get, you know, I get paid to show up and, and do what I do. And sometimes yeah. it works and sometimes it doesn't. And you don't get like, you don't pay if I'm successful in this, this, you're part of this process in totality. And, yep. You know, him bombing on that set helps form how his work progresses, you know, and that's, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting, yeah, we're, all, we're all part of it. And then to that, to that point, uh, when I, when I went to Rice, um, a couple things influenced me. I had these great teachers that were very abstract based, hmm. uh, Karen Broker, Basilos Poulos, they were painters, drawers, and everything was about being able to discuss your work. So you would paint and you would create, and then you had to sit down and there were long conversations about it at the oh, same that's time. Great. It was wonderful. I mean, and, and I got deep into architecture, I mean, art history, deep into art theory. And I had roommates that were all architects studying at Rice. And I was able to carry fantastic conversations uh, with them. Still dear friends to this day, uh, those roommates, all, you know, in the architectural field to some degree. And in uh, my final year, when I was set up to, you know, the way any university works is you, you work to a point and then you get a a little bit of notoriety and then maybe some success out of it. a scholarship, a grant, all of those things can possibly come your way. Not in every field, but definitely in the art field, that, that's where it leads toward. Mm -hmm. And in my senior year, my last semester, my father, um, uh, who had a friend in, in France, said, hey, would you like to study painting in the south of France? <laughs> and I said, yes. of course. Yeah, no question. And so in, instead of getting all those awards and accolades, I took off to the south of France and studied painting in a small studio in Aix-en-Provence. And that rocked my world. Cause I went from these, you know, six foot canvases, stretching my own work, gessoing, putting it all together to, you know, small boards, standing in a wheat field, oil, which I had never painted with before, painting oil paints of, you know, wheat fields in Mont Saint-Victoire. And I was not prepared for that. Uh, that that just, that's, that's why I was talking about that shift of, all of a sudden, I go back and I had some letters that I had written to my mother about, I don't know if I can do this. I'm, I'm totally at a loss. And I, I find myself successful at everything I kind of put my mind towards. And I was just in a big shock. Uh, what this was, is not, what you know, was the difficulty? I mean, there's a field. Paint it. What's the big deal? I'm not trying to insult, but I mean, it's like sure. for I a had person never... who doesn't understand creativity and art, like right. just, just make it look like that. That's all you got to do. Like what, what was the conflict? What was well, the difficulty? I think it was everything shifting at the same time. I went okay. from acrylic, large 
stretched canvases in studio paintings where we would talk about them mm -hmm. to small plain air painting with oil, which is a totally different medium. I mean, my first 12 paintings were mud because it took me forever to realize you, you have to let it dry. You have to stop. You have to go back, drink a cup of tea or something and watch it, let it dry a little bit, you know, and then come back into it. So medium, locale, environment. And then we never really talked. We talked about the painters that have preceded us, but we had never really talked about the work itself, which was, again, a total different aspect of of art in my mind. So I, um, it was it wasn't that it was hard in the sense that I couldn't put uh, the painting like I painted. I made I made the wheat field. I made the mountain. I was reasonably pretty good at it. I got a lot better as time went on. Uh, but um, it was really just a complete shift in artistic approach, um, which at the time was shocking. Now I look back and it was a wonderful uh, lesson, uh, both in my paintings themselves, because now I got the ability to combine both types of painting, both mediums, uh, and I can, and my art started to get charcoal and gesso and oil and acrylic, and I can really learn how to combine all those mediums. And I went to nudes and landscapes and abstract, and I can start to combine all those influences, and I can talk about it, which became rather lovely when I finished at Aix-en-Provence and started a painting career. Hmm. And I was successful. I sold everything. I mean, literally, I would have a show, everything would sell, and that would be it. And this is before I knew how to document my work. I was just enjoying painting. I actually, um, after Aix-en-Provence, I came back and I had a studio in a, I want to call it a cave, to the, uh, just under Monjoy Hill. There's that boat yard uh, tucked in around the corner from Monjoy Hill. There's like a boat yard where they build boats. Yep. yep. Carved out of Monjoy Hill was a, a, a metal gate Got to be from the Revolutionary War and a cave with a light bulb. And I got it for 250 bucks a month. So I would work construction and then I would go into that cave and I would paint and then take the ferry home. Because uh, I lived in Maine one year between uh, um, uh, art, art uh, as a painter and I had shows in Portland and I had shows in Los Angeles and I, I would sell everything. It was great taking women back to that cave to pose for nudes. I can't tell you how that how awkward that was. They're like, this is your studio. This, I mean, this you know, place. wet walls, the whole thing. <laughs> it was creepy. <laughs> yeah, very, very. Uh, uh, thankfully, the they were very accommodating, and it was it was just a wonderful time to uh, to growth. And that's where I really experimented on combining all those mediums. But one of the things I felt was missing was an understanding of space. Hmm. Um, the abstract notion of space. Uh, was really something I, I valued from my conversations with my roommates uh, in college. And then as I, and at Rice, and then over time, as I started painting, I, I was having trouble um, grasping a three-dimensionality depth. Um, uh, Cezanne is one of my favorite painters, and his mastery of depth and lack of and appearance of at the same time is spectacular. I mean, it, it basically changed his painting forever in modern art. And um, I couldn't get it. I couldn't find that, that, that depth. And I thought, okay, architecture is going to give me that. And so I actually went to architecture school to be a better painter. That was really my goal. I, I love the idea of a master's degree and adding to my sort of numbers after my name or letters on the wall. But the truth of architecture school was I'm going to learn space, which is why I didn't choose University of Texas or Pratt. I chose SciArc. It's about the only school that would take a painter who wanted to be an architect to be a better painter, hmm. you know? Interesting. So um, the, the, now 
I, I would have a hard time understanding why someone would want to live a day-to-day -day life as an <laughs> architect rather than a painter, other than maybe, you know, like you have more financial means potentially. But they're both extremely difficult ways to make a living. They are. But I, one of them I, is much more pleasant, yeah. I would imagine. <laughs> you know, being a painter, I, I'll... I'm not um, fine. Might not like from a, a well-off family. Uh, my family's probably lower middle. Uh, probably made its way to middle to lower upper middle. Like as over time, um, uh, I was poor, very poor early on in my life. Uh, my family, we didn't have very much. Money has never been the end goal. Um, I make enough to survive. I can always borrow. I've always paid it back. Uh, I'm always good at, at doing things. So if I need to work construction or or take an odd job here or there, I could I could fulfill it. And then, you know, the selling of art kind of was a means into itself. And there was never something inside me that said, you need to try and make a living with this. It was always, this is the path in order for you to do it better, for you to grow. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I never thought I would be an architect. Uh, the, the reason I went to architecture school was to live the lifestyle of being a painter. Um, I, I had anticipated that. Mm -hmm. uh, but Syarc and Syarc is interesting because it has family roots. Uh, my my father and mother were found friends with a founder, um, and so I've been kind of surrounded by Syarc people in Venice Beach my whole life. Uh, I never really thought about that because it happens, you know, happened when I was you know ages like I don't know four to four to eleven or four to twelve. It wasn't something evident in what I would call teenage formative years where you decide where you make decisions on what to do. Uh, but Syarc was incredibly appropriate for the, what I wanted to learn. What I didn't anticipate was, um, really falling in love with architecture. Hmm. I, I didn't anticipate that happening. I actually, I actually love it. I, I, um, we have a joke in the office, my partner and I, we met on the first day of graduate school uh, at Syarc and, uh, we actually got a house where we put our beds next to each other. Cause you know, the first year is just that's all you do. I mean, you wake up, you talk about architecture, school, classes, late nights, you know, try and design a museum in six weeks, you know, it's things that are just kind of ridiculous in the real world of things, but for school right. are just so fantastical. And it was, it was just so enveloping and wonderful. And I was learning about space. I was still painting. I was still having shows. I was still selling my work. All of that was happening. And at the meantime, I got to grow and study uh, this incredible profession, which seemingly has no borders. We know what it is as a direct, you know, this is a shelter, we're going to build something. But Syarc just doesn't approach it that way. Um, mm -hmm. They really approach it as what is this space? What is the environment? And how will you address it and shape it? Uh, and there's programmatically function, you know, structure, all that stuff plays into it. But by no means is it the requirement necessary to understand it. And that allowed me to really grow as a painter. Um, and it really, I mean, I just love making things. Syarc had this amazing wood shop and was one block from a Home Depot. I so mean, I was, it, yeah. It sounds like Syarc was, was very philosophical in its, in its approach and study and inquisition into design and space and experience and put the technical aspect of it a little bit more in the back seat. Sure, that happened uh, in, in later points, but w the wonderful thing, at the time that I went to Syarc, craft was still a big part of it. 
Um, I was the last, I think you're probably around the same age as me, late 40s, right? So 45. Yeah. Okay, I'm 49. So um, we're, we're of the age where we had a little, we had most of the analog before digital, right? right. And so the first year of Sire, CAD wasn't part of architecture. No, we not, were drunk. not at that time. Like even yeah, five years before I went to school, yeah, CAD was just like just a blip on just, the radar. Just twin, yeah, we were drawing. Yeah. So my first year of architecture school, I drew everything all the way up until my second year. Uh, my partner and I decided to go to um, Lugano because uh, Cyark has a, a studio in Lugano uh, earlier than everybody else because, I mean, why not take advantage of it? And it was amazing. We are Lugano is about uh, just outside of Milan, uh, which is famous for Giuseppe Turani, who's probably the most uh, the greatest sectional architect uh, uh, that's ever been. I mean, you can argue about some more modern ones, but he's uh, he was just fantastic to study. And and we did a we you know traveled through Prague. It was just an incredible experience um, studying architecture in in Switzerland. And then we came back to Sayark. And we actually started our own company. Um, uh, he has this kind of the same mentality as me. While I love learning about it, I, I like starting to put it into practice. And we had this amazing wood shop, so we started building furniture for people. Uh, and then from the furniture, it grew into um, uh, work in and around Los Angeles. And by the time we were done with school, on top of painting all the time, my partner, uh, his name's Scott, uh, we had built uh, probably about 30 projects in Los Angeles, varying from furniture to restaurants from the ground up, uh, additions on the sides of houses. Like we had fully engaged and we were, we designed all the SciArt graduation parties. Um, hmm. You know, and it's a great thing when Tom Main walks out of a class and looks at what you've built and is like, that's pretty impressive boys. And I'm like, oh God, it's freaking Tom Main, you know, he's got an El Croquis. This guy yeah. is incredible. So. Uh, the, the, the growth at Cyarc went from analog to digital, but because I had that, that beautiful growth into digital, it was really spectacular way to, to, to do architecture, hmm. you know, it, it's, a uh, it's a very interesting, uh, transition between the two for the reason that it, one of the things I've been thinking a lot on has been just, uh, emotions, what, what we, why we have them, what they are, where they come from. Uh, that kind of thing, but something so uh, emotive as uh, painting uh, yep. th to then turn it into this far more objective thing of actually creating physical space. It it's like yep. you're you're learning a subjective uh, process and utilizing it in in a in a very emotive manner that then translates through into a very objective thing that, that other people really experience where with uh, being a painter and artist in that sense, you take your subjective experience and you translate it into a direct objective interpretation of what you were experiencing that other people can just view and mm -hmm. then experience emotion from that. Whereas you've, you've now translated your, your, your process and experience that is highly subjective in painting and, technically educated yourself but done it through a school that's highly subjectively oriented and philosophical in that manner and now you're actually practicing in a much more objective uh day-to-day -day yeah. thing than working as as a painter and to me it's it's an interesting transition even when you look at it um from a psychological perspective that 
you know, the saying of if you're not open or liberal when you're young, you're heartless. And if you're not uh, conservative and more objective when you're older, you're brainless. This, this is just a common saying that the different news networks will like to throw around to just get you on your side. But that, that idea that, you know, pre-midlife, you're absorbing the subjective experience and kind of lightly regurgitating it. And after midlife, you're far more uh, interacting in a, in a far more objective manner in, and in many ways devoid of as much emotion as you might have experienced in the first part of your life. And that's a, that's a weird thing for me to, to understand and to experience in my own life, that so much responsibility and processing of subjective experiences, I think it has something to do with midlife that you come to this point where you understand that I've absorbed a lot of what I'm going to absorb and I have to now turn that into something where I start to objectify myself into sure. being a, a creator or, or, or the difference in this world essentially now. Yeah, I had a, a mentor in uh, Italy. Uh, his name was Michael Green. He's an English painter, father, friend of my father's from back when my father was living in New York. And um, my father was an actor. He was surrounded by all, all sorts of artists back in the 60s and 70s. I think he was even at Warhol's factory at some point, um, but they asked him to do something disgusting and he quit. So, uh, but Michael Green, this painter in Italy who I was studying with uh, said, look, you can be a sponge. By all means, be a sponge, but at some point you gotta squeeze it out. Yeah. You can't, you can't just keep absorbing. At some point you gotta squeeze and put it forth. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. And I, I actually think about that comment a lot because I love being the sponge involved in all these being involved in experiences and all these travel and, and all this stuff that can happen in the world. But there is a point where you fill up and, and as a, as an artist, I need to put it out there. And mm. you're absolutely right that, um, that at a younger point in my life, it was much easier to put it out in a, in a, the two dimensional space of painting. But as I've grown and, and understood architecture, it's now moving towards the uh, functional aspect of, of architecture. And it's actually grown beyond that, which we'll, we'll talk a little further as I, I as I I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. <laughs> so the, um, what was wonderful about Cyrus is, is we finished school, uh, and started a practice, um, immediately a design build practice. Uh, I, I got you there too. You did too. You design build right. Well, right, right out, out of school, school. Yep. we did. We'd, we'd started a design practice right out of school. My business partner at the time uh, had finished his IDP because he went right through from high school into architecture school, went right through, did his IDP. It, you know, it was just a machine where right. I was kind of like, eh, I'm going to go surf for a while. I'm going to go live <laughs> over here. I'm going to do that. I was a little more, you know. So he was three years ahead of me and we went right into doing that. And our practice lasted for three years before we each were like, sick of each other and wanting to kill each other and at that point we're like you know we miss being friends this whole thing is not as valuable as being friends why don't we right. go back to being friends so yeah we're actually it's funny we had a very similar so our practice actually started in school it was called the sullivan bell design consortium yeah. um we we loved bringing in uh different people and different friends to do work with us uh one of the things that my partner and i are really proud of is not having a lot of ego about our work um, like I said, we were terrible at doc documentation about signing our name places. It wasn't about my work or our work. It was just about actually 
being in the process of creation all the time. Um, and we just made some amazing projects and Hollywood was kind of blowing up at the time and we became known as nightclub designers and we were growing in popularity. And in the meantime, you know, life hit us. Um, various aspects of, of life hit my partner pretty hard and my sister passed away after about six years. And that was it. We, we similar situation. We realized, you know, I was doing projects on the side in our own firm. It was just really not, not productive. And at that time I had been painting and I had been showing and uh, the Israeli consulate asked me to um, uh, do a painting exercise for 20,000 people at uh, Israeli festival in Los Angeles. So I had never been to Israel, but I did a study of the four areas, four regions of Israel. I put together these massive canvases, brushes. I kind of held this whole event and they're like, we can't pay you. Uh, what would you like? And I said, well, I'd like to go to Israel. Um, I think it was a way to grieve for my sister. My father is Jewish, so I've had Jewish roots surrounding me in my whole time. And I felt uh, an affinity towards the religion. And I thought, you know, a trip to Israel is going to bring me to a, closer to a, a spiritual understanding of my sister's passing and how I can um, relate to it. Because I wasn't, I was fine. I was crying on the way to work at Starbucks. It was it was just really hard. Uh, so I got, they offered me a one year artist in residency uh, in Southern Israel. So I turned to my partner and I said, I, I gotta stop. I can't do this. Um, I'm going to Israel for a year. Let's shut the business down. Uh, I'll see you when I come back and we'll figure out how we can move forward. So we closed everything down. I think I left a little bit early. My partner doesn't let me forget it because I think we weren't done with a nightclub. He had to finish it out and it was a nightmare working with that particular client. and. I left and I went to Israel and I uh, had a beautiful little studio in the desert and uh, I painted every day in that studio, um, emotional and evocative paintings, sketches, watercolors, drawings, just, you know, I learned Hebrew, I learned about Israel and I was able to grieve for my sister through that process, which was massive. Um, it was incredibly healing moment to do that and I painted. Um, we had a big show at the end uh, after a year uh, I had five paintings in the show. I sold all five. I made like, I don't know, 10 grand, 15 grand. It was like 12,500. I sold another painting on the side to bring it to 15. And then I flew to Prague um, and lived in Prague for six weeks, like a king. Uh, you know, came home with another couple thousand dollars. And the difficulty of it was what happens to me as an architect when I completely stop the profession and go directly into painting. And the, the beautiful realization was absolutely nothing. I came back to Los Angeles, um, you know, moved back into the apartment that I had in downtown LA and uh, immediately got job offers um, of all types. Uh, and it was a remarkable that I hadn't lost any of the things that I'm good at in the architecture, design, management, client relations, all the things that I do really well, uh, construction, all those things, they didn't go away uh, just because I took a year off. And that was big revelation right there. Uh, I am not tied to any one thing just because of time. Mm. Um, I, I could stop architecture for two years and it's going to be here when I get back and my knowledge isn't gone. Um, I, can, I can slow down or stop painting and come back to it. That's a huge revelation um, mm. and it allows an incredible amount of confidence moving forward. I, I will say that was a big moment. So when I came back, um, I, my partner was working for a firm, I think it was Marmo Radzinger, so we weren't going to be partners anymore. I started my own company um, and I started uh, sort of the similar aspects of designing. Now, I wasn't licensed. Uh, I'm not licensed. 
Um, but I was able to get structural engineers to sign off and I jumped right back into the fray and, uh, and, and you know, went right back into architecture again uh, and painting at the same time, which was fantastic. Um, now, what, uh, why was that important for you to realize that you could take that time and not lose everything? Well, you invest an enormous amount into a profession uh, again, I had gone into architecture to be a better painter, but by the time I was done with school, I was ready to be both. Um, yeah. I, I didn't see the need to divide those things up. Um, but it's in school and, and a few years after, it's very much an iterative process. Like you finish this, you grow to the next. You finish this, you grow to the next. You finish this. And there's a, I think I had never really taken time off. So I thought, well, if I leave this profession and I come back, will I have any credibility? You know, it's not like I had a substantiated career. I had six years of design build, you know, I mean that for, you know, there's, there's contractors with more experience than that. So I was nervous about the, um, about losing enough credibility that I couldn't put myself in a similar position. I wasn't licensed and I had never worked for anybody to this day. I have never worked for anybody. Um, I, I've never had a job with another firm. So huh. I've but done I mean, like as builds, but yeah. The uh, that time off, why was that time off? Uh, what was it about not working and doing something else for a time that was beneficial? Like, why not just keep working? Like, what was it in the process of uh, I see. processing? I see like, why, why did you come back at the end of that and say, I have more confidence now knowing that for one, I have the ability to leave this when I want to leave it yeah. and I can come back and still survive. But that in between space where you were actually gone in that, that process, what was valuable about that time? Because I've done a similar thing in my own life where my wife and I, I think it's just a couple of years after we were married, we started taking the month of February off, which right. for an American family yeah. is ludicrous but <laughs> i've slowly stretched the seams on that intentionally and gone yeah. to bigger and bigger gaps of time and i found those times of not working not being an architectural photographer constantly um it leaves me with far more of a desire to do architectural photography to look into life and and the oddity of it. it it makes me more curious it lets yep. me breathe like for me that time is is all of it's it's completely refilling the tank so the car, car can keep going right. and it seems like everyone else is just continually driving and not filling the tank and in our culture you know you can't i just cannot imagine how someone could work a job that they're so so about and have like one to maybe two weeks off a year. Right. Like how, how are you I, I, a sane person at the end of that? Yeah. And, and it, so I, I will say I'm not so, so about, about what I do. Um, I, right. If I was so, so about what I do, I wouldn't do it. That's a really big part of my life. I am so passionate about, but a about lot of people would call that like a, an absolute luxury, like, you know, cause uh, I agree a hundred percent. And, and frankly, uh, to, to mention it, I've actually, um, for a while, I had this thing of the five-year plan. I'm going to work hard for five years and then take a one-year off. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what the Israeli um, uh, mentality was, is 
I'm going to push incredibly hard in this profession and then take a year off and then come back and push incredibly hard and then take a year off, uh, which I did again. But um, I started to realize that that similar to you, uh, I can actually take it's it's a nice thing owning your own company to be able to step back um, financially. There's responsibilities, but as long as you can maintain those, you can you can afford that time off. Uh, which I, I've been able to do. I, I'm in complete agreement with you, and I don't know how people don't do it. Uh, at our firm now that my partner and I run, um, we, we came back together again. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. But we offer, uh, after two years, unlimited PTO because we realize, one, we have foreign a lot of foreign workers, and they're not taking two weeks. They're taking four. That's just the way the rest of the world works. Um, and the other part of it is we want people to absorb, grow, and expand their their time and breathe in order to come back and be incredibly productive and focused and passionate. And I think right. that's what that month of February probably gives you. Like you said, you come back refreshed, but there's, it's not like you drop photography the month of February, you're just not working. And, uh, right. and that, that's a, that's a totally different mentality. I'm not, I don't want to say that while I was in Israel, I didn't think about architecture or engage with it. I just wasn't working mm -hmm. uh, on architecture. I was, I was focused on, on the more, the painter side of me and the more painterly side. Right. Um, which was, a which was what was incredible about what I learned in that time off, uh, from the, the practice of architecture was exactly kind of what you're saying. I, I the time to breathe is important. Hmm. Um, uh, and look, that was an extended one because grieving was a big part of that process. I don't hmm. think uh, a month off is necessary for grieving. I think if you lose someone as close as a sibling, you got to take kind of the time you need. Uh, to get past it. I don't think that happens uh, in a month, uh, but you know, everybody's different, but I don't think that's the way it works. Uh, hmm. At least it didn't for me. So that was a big part was, was getting through the grief uh, and, and being able to grow uh, at, at that time as well. Hmm. Cool. That, what about your, um, because we have kids of very similar ages, have you ever considered what you do and is it transferable to your kids? Because it's not like you or I are uh, owning a plumbing business that you can simply pass right. along and right. they can become a plumber. And it's a technical trade that if you're good right. at it, you're good at it, period. You know, it, you're you're a creative and it's a uniquely it, it's a unique vision that comes from your brain. And when you're gone, you know, that business, unless you've thought about it ahead of time and structured a company policy and growth thing on its right. own. Right. It's right. A, like as an architectural photographer, I highly doubt I could bring one of my sons in and take over. Yeah, maybe, right. but it's highly unlikely. Yeah. And that's kind of similar in architecture. It's a little less, but how, what, what is your thought process of the connectivity between what you do for a living and your family and your kids and how that influences back and forth and, this so, is kind of an unthought out question on my part. No, no, I, I like it. I, I, and it's funny because it actually leads to the next part. Because after I came back from Israel, I started my own practice called Tima Winter Inc. Um, and I, I was doing a lot of similar things, build outs of nightclubs and growth. And I started a furniture company. I met my wife and I had children. And one of the things that happened when I had children, I had these two companies, architecture and furniture construction running at the same time was I, uh, I, I didn't have time to make art. Mm. Um, I didn't have time to paint because painting is an incredible uh, dedication, uh, both mentally and physically. 
and um, I, it, it started to drop. But I'm still an artist. I still needed to, to produce a creative, a creative flow and architecture as a business doesn't necessarily warrant that. Yes, there's moments of sketching and there's research, but in and of itself, it's not, a, it's not the production of, of, a, of, of a process that's, that's questioning in my head. And it's not as quick. It's so not I start... an exercising of complications within your own life. Correct. Perfect. So yeah. I started to do watercolors. And, uh, and then I also started to um, keep active travel journals. And so in relationship to answer your question, one of the things for me that I have understood about architecture and art in general is observation. Incredibly important to be observant. Um, you can be observant of emotional, read the room, right? You can be observant of details, you know, how is this lock attached to the door? You can be observant of the macro, you know, how does the earth spinning and its relationship to weather? I mean, that's, that's a big part. So I, I talk often with my kids about being observant. Uh, and the second part is um, uh, retention and recording. And that, uh, that has been evidenced in, uh, we look at things often and I'll talk to them about it afterwards. Uh, I engage with my kids quite often at museums and we go to the museum and we look at the architecture as well as the art. And then we'll come home and we'll do watercolors or paintings while looking oh, wow. at an artist book. And we keep travel journals, very extensive travel journals, gluing, scrapbooking, sketching, putting all these things in. So when we travel, I, I just took my kids to Venice and they have to draw the Basilica or they have to draw their favorite detail. Or we went into the uh, Olivetti uh, um, uh, by Carlo Scarpa. And, you know, we, how do these stairs put together? Do you see how the rough edge is next to the smooth edge? So there's really wonderful conversations that can happen from the micro to the macro of, of looking and observing in detail and then having a, a, a method to recording it. Uh, what's interesting is that it really only happens for me on traveling. I don't keep those journals regularly, which is why I attended a journal right. workshop over the weekend because I'm frustrated at that. I want to keep that stuff all the time. I, I love experiencing the world on all these levels. And it seems that when I travel, I'm like actively engaged. When I'm local, I'm not. Right. Uh, I am maybe mentally, but not to the point of recording. And, and, uh, and, and so this is something that is one of the ways that I was able to engage with them. Um, I also, we also uh, paint quite often. Uh, maybe once every two weeks, we'll take watercolors and we'll go out and walk around Venice Beach or downtown LA, or we'll go out to Joshua Tree or sometimes we go to Baja and we'll paint together hmm. um, and we'll do watercolors together. So I, I find that that actively keeps the creative spirit going. Uh, my ex-wife now is also extremely creative. Pianos required before they're able to go on screens. There's a lot of engagement with a creative side of, of studying things that are creative and that enables it to, to grow. But to your question, before we get too far about the legacy, my partner and I have had exactly this conversation last week. Are we selling this business or are we creating a legacy for our kids to take over? Right. And it's incredibly difficult to make that decision when they're at the age that our children are. Because I have no idea. It's not like they're, I mean, there are some kids that are predestined. You can tell what they're going to be, but the majority of them you can't. And I, I have no idea what my kids are going to do. For you what know? I'm doing, what I've, I'm known for and what I have some modicum of respect for doing and how I do it. I didn't know I was going to do that <laughs> yeah. until I was like in my early thirties. Right. And, right. and it's not until like the last, you know, 
five, ten years that, you know, people know more about me. Right. You found some success. Yeah. Yeah. People are actually like, oh, we're so happy to work with you. You know, that thing doesn't, in a career, it doesn't happen until a point. And you just don't know. I mean, especially someone like me. Yeah. You just, you don't know. And I, I'm, I, I constantly am looking for change because like you're saying, you don't sketch when you're at home as much as when you're traveling. There's something about that. Um, it, it's uh, that it, to experience something for the first time or to experience something that you just is is new, you know, for the first time. Right. Um, experiencing something new. The only way you have to interact with it primarily is uh, emotionally. Right. Because you can't reference the previous time you experienced that. So you have to be in an emotional space when you go to a new place because you're it's not that you're um it's not that you're able to shut down your emotions in other situations or whatever else but to be in a new place requires uh the presence of emotions uh being the first guard that that the experience goes through so you're naturally uh more in this exploratory uh, uncomfortable in some ways, but also invigorated, you know, you're, you're put at risk because you don't know this place. You haven't been here before, but it's like all those things about what you use to subjectively take things in. They're all in this heightened state and that, that ability to experience places for the first time, you can do that all throughout your life, but it it requires that you travel where when you're a kid, you just walk out the door and And it's like that all the time. You know, yeah. I'll talk to my kids about it. I'll talk. I'll say, you know what? Let's let's approach this day like we're tourists. Right. You know, I've lived in Venice Beach my whole life. I said, let's walk down the boardwalk like we're tourists, like we haven't seen this before. You know, right. let's go to downtown and go to this museum like we haven't been here five times. Let's look at these paintings and look at how people are dressed and what they're drinking and eating. And let's look at it because, you know, you go to Europe and everything, the metric system, everything looks different, feels different. Mm. I, I, I think that you can, in the same sense that you can look at something with a painter's eye or an architect's eye, right? I think you can look at, at, at your environment with a traveler's eye, hmm. even if you've been there before, even if it's familiar. Yeah. And, uh, and you just have to train, you have to train yourself. You have to give yourself the ability and say, okay, I'm going to wipe away my preconceived notions and my sensibilities and my understanding of where I'm at and really approach this as if this is the first time I'm walking onto the Mocha campus in, in Los Angeles, you know, oh my God, they're so attractive, you know, or whatever. I mean, you just start looking around and realizing, you know, who people are and, and what, what is going on around you. And it, it really can be spectacular. It's hard to maintain. I will say that, yeah. um, but you know, it's, it's a little exhausting. Well, yeah, it's the principle of um, zone of proximal development, which uh, different different people have uh, psychologically a, a disposition that allows them to be in a state of uh, chaos for a longer amount of time than other people. So right. if you're someone who has a very open disposition in a certain area, you can be in a state of unknown uncertainty within that subject matter for an allotted amount of time, more than individuals that would not be gifted in that, uh, in that subject matter or whatever as much because 
you can go out and you can process those kind of experiences and everything else. And then you have to come back to your, your, your area that is not in chaos. The, the, right. the objective area that you have, the four walls and the door and the bed or, you know, whatever it is, your place of order. You come back to your place of order for a time long enough to rejuvenate, to go back out into the chaos and establish more concrete utility from that chaos that you can bring back to add to your your area of order and to be constantly out there constantly traveling <laughs> constantly experiencing the new yeah it's just yeah. too caustic after a while you you do have to come home but when you come home you see home for that new for that first time in many ways you know well, I, I i read uh, an interesting uh, interview the other day by florence williams uh, she wrote a book called the nature fix um and this is in terms of nature and uh, she had this amazing comment there's one word that she was called uh, microdosing awe. <laughs> and I, yeah. I thought that was spectacular because that's basically what we're talking about. How can you microdose awe? How can you find awe in five or 10 minutes of your day? Um, yeah. This yeah. morning it had just rained in LA and the clouds were huge and I live on a houseboat. Uh, so I'm able to look out and like they're really right over the water with the reflection. I could be in awe for five minutes this morning. Right. Um, and that was really something spectacular, you know I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, I had to go to a doctor, saw an x-ray. There's an awe of, oh my God, how easy is it to take pictures of, of the interiors of our bodies? Right. That's a little bit of awe. So I, I try and now, uh, I really like that statement and that thought of microdosing awe into into your daily life. Hmm. Yeah, so. that that concept of awe as a psychological thing is interesting. And I have a I have a question on my wall at my home office that like, what does awe inspire you to do? Does does awe inspire you to worship and not question, or does it uh, inspire you to inquire and question? Like right. a lot of people, when they come into the presence of awe, they they do not want to mess with yeah, it. Yeah, of course. They, they just yeah. want to perceive it and not question it. And then other people are like, wow, this is incredible. We must know more. Right. Now we must pull apart, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. Which is to yeah. treat whatever it is that is making you have this experience of awe you you essentially have to then say i'm not going to treat whatever this is that's giving me awe i have to not treat it as sacred i have to treat it as simply something that appears to me in some way to be chaos that i need to venture into understand more and bring back you know yeah yeah agreed i mean i i i love the i love that that sensibility um i think i'm both I think I, I I have no problem sitting in awe, and I have no problem. I, I often like to investigate and discover more, um, only because it leads to more awe. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a thing that uh, truth is a horizontal proposition. That oh, that's a good one. I gotta write yeah, that down. Like, <laughs> as soon as you see something on the horizon that you have a question about, it, you you venture towards that thing on the horizon. But as soon as you get to that thing and you get that answer, the horizon that it was on has moved past it. And there's something else now that relates to that thing just out on the horizon again. And, and it's constantly, right. as soon as you make it to where that horizon was, more questions, you know, right. more awe is waiting for you. Right. And it's, yeah, that, that there's just endless amounts of, um, there's just so much out there to know, which I, th I think the, an experience and in that process of knowing and experience, experiencing produces that wisdom that, that uh, I think there, there's a huge amount of wisdom hidden within great works of art 
that that is why they they connect with so many people and why they're valuable. Yeah. That, like that's the, the the most sneakiest form of of wisdom, in my opinion. <laughs> Weird way of putting it, but no, I agree though. I think it's great. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I took my boys to uh, the Museum of Modern Art in Los Angeles a couple of weekends ago, and um, it had new work in there. Uh, so it was a lot of things I hadn't seen before and they hadn't seen before. And, you know, the variable question is, why is that art? Why I could do that. Why? And that I love that because then I can say, I don't know. Do why it. do you think it's art? You know, <laughs> no, not just do like. it. But but why, why do you think that's art? That's a great question. Let's talk about why that's art. What what is that? Is there any power to it? What's happening right. there? And it just it, the most beautiful responses and discussions come out of those of those questions. You know, so to your point, the wisdom isn't always necessarily what the art is putting out there, but it's also what you're absorbing and what you're engaging in. And when it, especially when it comes to children, it's fantastic to to have honest discussions. Sometimes they look at it and go, that's awful. I can't stand that thing. You know, sometimes they're blown away by how complex it is. I mean, Damien right. Hirst stuff is is incredibly complex, even though it's re repetitive. So but, you know, you see a wall of butterflies. What is that? That's. They just put butterflies together, but it's so right. beautiful. How is this affecting me? And you just yeah, get like, some really wonderful conversations. Why you know? is that beautiful? Is, right. Why is that beautiful? Yeah. Yeah. That that's always been a weird um, thing to think about for me is that modern modern art is I, I know very I'm very undereducated in the art realm, um, but it seems modern art. Is, is far more abstract. And that seems like a function of uh, a response to the technical advance of our own societies. So sure. we, we've come to know so much and understand so much that where does art go at that point? Because it seems to me that good art is pushing into uh, what is unknown to bring back something to give. Uh, to, to yeah. inspire. And the only way to do that when you've conquered so much of knowledge and tech technicality of just everything, you know, essentially being under our, under our control in so many ways that the only place for art to really go to find more is into these very abstract areas that, that uh, produce these, these um, conversations around, value and meaning and, and and what 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 you do with those things and why we do it right. rather than you know the the realistic interpretation of things which used to be considered far more the standard practice of art uh, you know it's interesting I, I don't think you're wrong but i think you missed uh i think you might have missed something in that I miss so, a lot of things. <laughs> well, only in that, that there's a really wonderful duality that maybe wasn't there at the time of uh, abstract arts emergence. Mm -hmm. We go to museums to see art, to right. art, that, art that's good, right? Okay. But the art we have in our homes is, is markedly different often yeah. than what you see in a museum. I would be more, uh, I would be more apt to buy a watercolor landscape than I would uh, an Agnes Martin painting, mm. right? The, you know, a series of lines on a paper. It's not that I wouldn't buy the Agnes Martin. I'm just, if I see a beautiful landscape, I'm probably going to want that to hang in my home because I have a relationship with its reality. Then mm. I am going to want to hang something in my home that constantly makes me question where I am. 
Now, I, I'm, I'm a very strong art historian, so I have all different phases. I have actually got lucky. I found a Giacometti print uh, at, a, at a, a swap meet. So I have, okay. I'm looking now, I have a salon wall in my room and I have Mont-Saint-Victoire and I have a Giacometti and I have photographs and I have, you know, I have both abstract and literal art uh, hanging. But I think that the majority of um, both, uh, all, all um, religions and, and cultures prefer the representational in their environment and prefer the, the, the more abstract or uh, obtuse types of artwork as something that they go somewhere to view and discuss. And I think yeah. that has been heightened a lot by our, our, our relationship. And I'm not huh. talking about the kind of graphic stuff that's out there right now. I'm talking about true uh, sort of uh, uh, creation, created art, yeah. you know, not, not sort of like the Star Wars uh, you know, poster or something like that. I'm talking about like the actual, do I want to buy a landscape or do I want to buy this piece of abstract art to hang in right. my home? I think the large majority is going for the, the landscape because of its representational feeling. Um, hmm. So I think our relationship with art is very emotional in the sense of, of its proximity uh, as much as, as where we view it uh, in, in an environment as well. Yeah, that that's a interesting take on that that helps me understand uh, why a project I did in the past that was successful uh, did not sell a single thing. <laughs> so we we did a project where we um, we got access to prisoners in the uh, main state penitentiary, and we had them write a letter to the younger self. Then we took the um, letter and used Photoshop to put it into the portrait around them, so right. you can sit there and view their portrait that. I think we photographed their portraits really well and dark, darker background. And then the writing is around them and you can read their entire letter that's in their handwriting that they've written to their younger self. So as you sit there, you realize you're eavesdropping on someone else's right. you know, conversation and it's in their handwriting. So their personal kind of effect is in it, you know, and halfway through you're reading, you know, what are often these very difficult and tragic, uh, subject matters that put these people in these places that they're talking about and you come out of it and you look at the person because they're there talking to you essentially but they're in your head and it's in their handwriting but in your head and in their voice and it we we had it up in a gallery here just in Biddeford and it they they had to keep the gallery that show up in the gallery for like I, I could be exaggerating. I forget what it was, but like one to four months longer than the original, like week or two, it was supposed to be up because so many people wanted to come and see it because it was it was a very moving thing. To it was very actually, evocative. Yeah. Very evocative. It was very cool nice. to go and see. I, it, you would just watch people stand in front of them, start reading it, and just start crying. It was yeah, it was that. very it was very much putting you in their shoes because of it's kind of like that thing where you. You can watch a movie and it doesn't affect you as much as reading the book because in the book, you're creating the movie in your head. You're in charge right. of the camera angles and the selection of everything. Right. So you produce more. And in that that um, process of, of viewing that documentation, docu-art is kind of what I would call it, um, you were more active as the viewer. But you know, they were for sale and people could buy them, whatever, but no one no. wanted something that haunting <laughs> right, right. in their home. Yeah. And even after it was up there, uh, 
there was still a lot of requests for people wanting to come and see it. So it was hung in the hallways of one of the mills here in Biddeford. Eventually, the workers took it upon themselves to take all the photos down. I mean, in their, their huge life-size photos, the workers themselves took the whole ins installation down because they did not like having to see it every single day. Right. That's very powerful. Yeah, I can. I get it. It was such a but... weird, weird thing to understand because I, I, a lot of times I feel like I don't experience the world in the same way that a, most everyone else does because I would hang something like that in my home and I'd want it to haunt me every single day, like as right. a reminder. But maybe I wouldn't if, if I actually put it up in my house because and I haven't put them up in my house. So maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Pull one up at your house. Now you got a yeah. test. You know, I don't know. My I don't think my wife would let me do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't get to make it. Yeah, I hear you. You gotta make yeah. those decisions. But whatever that uh, that that aside, um, where where do you find your to wrap this all up? I mean, where do you find yourself today, and and what are the things that are really um, inspiring you and 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 challenging you in in your life these days, in your pre professional and creative life? Well, uh, my partner and I, um, after I got back from Israel, worked to have my own furniture company, had my own business. Uh, we eventually teamed up again and started the firm I'm currently in called Relativity Architects. Uh, we grew from four people eight years ago to over 50 right now, wow. um, which is meteoric in terms of architectural um, positioning. Yeah, uh, we are we are doing a lot of different businesses. We don't have a singular typology. We do hospitality, you know, restaurants, hotels, bars. We do motion picture studios, affordable housing. Um, it's really been wonderful to grow broadly in the world of architecture. At the same time, I'm still uh, painting watercolors. I've started writing uh, a little bit more. Um, I've got a couple of uh, articles and essays I put out for competition uh, on understanding architecture. Um, but the firm has grown because it's grown so big. My role in the firm is, is changing. Um, and that's really interesting. Uh, I'm not a big labeler. I don't want to say good, bad, or, or things like this. What I like is I love sort of experiencing the, the change of it. And I'm not, I don't draw anymore, uh, at least not on AutoCAD or, or, or three dimensionally. Um, I sketch, there's a lot of conversations. I put out fires, I get new clients. Um, these are a lot of my roles, uh, in the firm. I teach, which I really love the mentoring aspect. Um, professionally, it's, it's a really great question. I, I love the idea of growing and growing into a firm that will have really lasting impact on an urban fabric, especially of my hometown. Some of this legacy stock stuff that we discussed earlier, the Olympics are coming. I'd love to do a building that's involved in the Olympics for Los Angeles. Um, I can drive around the city and I can point to any number of sites that I've affected, whether it's a ground up or interior uh, in a relationship. I can. Uh, this is starting to happen nationally and internationally as well. So I, I love the growth of the profession, um, but I, I want to stay a little bit tied to my roots. I'm an avid. I think when I first made money, not a lot, but a little bit of money, I didn't know what to do with it. So I started buying land off eBay. Um, and I own parcels of land all across the United States, like Detroit, uh, New Mexico, awesome. Colorado. Yeah, so Just I have these empty really land. empty blank parcels. Um, so I bought one in Mexico recently and I built a house down there. Um, I have one in Joshua Tree and I managed to pull a lot of construction materials off a job that was being demoed. And I've got a design for that house. Um, I think 
my professional goal would be to consistently build these homes and use them as um, almost like paintings where I get to engage and create uh, without a lot of governing rules that, that happen in the world of architecture that are out of my control, whether it's you know code parameters or client parameters. I get to choose the, the nature of the design. I get to choose what it's for. And they're sort of these out of the way places. So no one really gives a shit. It's not like I'm building, sorry for language. It's not like I'm building next to somebody's house. I'm building out in the middle of nowhere in the desert or up a side of a mountain. So I really have, it's almost an artistic, a true artistic approach to architecture. And I'm really looking forward to it. Like for instance, in Detroit, uh, my idea is to build a 30 foot long white wall that's four feet high and then see what it looks like in a year. You know? Oh, that's like, get... that's like farming. That's like farming art. Hey, that, that's interesting. Like in Colorado, I have this land up the half, uh, halfway up a mountain. I wanna just build a viewing platform. And I wanna be able to go up there and basically live on this platform and then completely leave it empty and just sort of have this flat deck that sits, it's 7,000 feet up. So there's 7,000 feet behind you and the plains of San Luis out in front of you and just sort of use it as a, almost a Buddhist meditative platform. You know, you always see the cartoons where he's sitting on the top of a mountain. It's that type of thing. It's just this blank platform. So I have these, these ideas that I want to sort of generate out of those properties. Um, that's something I, I'm exploring. I, I think you you'd know? make a great eccentric billionaire. <laughs> I think so, but I'm very far away from that. As an architect, I don't know that that's achievable in life. Um, I, I but, love the uh, I love the idea <laughs> in Detroit because you know you you put something like that up, and something's happening to it. Yeah, humanity will tag it, claim it, change it, right? Yeah. Crash a car into it, piss on it. I mean, all all these different things are going to happen to what is a four foot wall running down the middle of a property. You know, in the middle of a place called Six Mile. So it's kind of on the fringes of urban. And Detroit is this really bizarre, super urban fabric that has been decimated. So it's almost rural. You know, it's a a Mm. rural environment with urban infrastructure. It's very bizarre. Um, And it's incredibly, you know, it's not very safe. There's all kinds of things about it that are so. Not that great drinking water either, I hear. (laughs) No, no. So the idea is that that, uh, I want to explore some of some of those things. So in a sense, I'm dropping back into the uh, micro understanding of architecture because right now in my firm, I am hyper macro. I mean, I'm, you know, we're doing, you know, we've got $30 million projects, $50 million projects. I love the housing aspect for the homeless. Um, That is actually one area just came across my radar is is creating, uh, teaming up with an ADU, uh, accessory dwelling unit company. That's all they make and making affordable shelters uh, environments for different municipalities in California. And we're just starting that engagement. And, you know, the wonderful thing about my office is we're incredibly collaborative. We all talk to each other and there's this wonderful and great engagement and creativity. And uh, I'd like to keep growing that. I'm afraid that the growth of our firm happens, that starts to drift. So, you know, I'm investigating ways to maintain that as well. So yeah, I definitely the, have a lot of irons in the fire, um, you know, keep creating. Right. Uh, but, you know, what happens next? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the friend of mine that I started the architectural firm with his his firm took off really well. Um, and from conversations with him, the thing he keeps saying is, you know, growth like that can be extremely dangerous for yeah. a company. You just kind of think like, oh, you're growing, you're making money. That's good. Right. But you can really, you can 
you can become just uh, a, a, a very quick generalization and, and it's just, yeah. you know, you're worthless essentially at some point. So to, to take the added value coming into your company, but keep that initial uh, baby in that bathwater, you know, that, that, that keeps that original vision and passion and direction without just becoming this money machine uh, instead is, is uh, apparently it's, it's a, a challenge. difficult thing. It, it is. It is. I, 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 I'm lucky. I have an incredible partner, Scott Sullivan. I mean, he's, he's amazing. He's all the things I'm not and half of the things I am. And I like to think of myself the same way. I'm all the things he's not and half of the things he is. So we are able to really blend and, and, and come to a common ground from completely different aspects. Uh, and, and there's a level of understanding we have of each other that, you know, for the six, first six years of design build, breaking apart where he went to work for these high-end architecture firms, coming back together and finding this path forward. And we also have this studio director, her name is Jinnah, who has this incredible feminine quality, which I can't remark enough on how that alters the way because, you know, we're men, we're hyper-masculine to some degree. There's arguments and battling, but there's this really beautiful feminine approach um, to, to a work environment that can smooth and craft and slowly sort of mold something into shape. And between the three of us, the kind of work we're, we're, we're generating and putting forth out of the office and the way we're approaching the work, which for me is more important than the end result, um, is, is still maintained in the way you said it, where hmm. we actively have these engagements. And yes, it is hard to do it. By the way, what's your friend's name of his firm? Caleb Johnson. Caleb Johnson Caleb Architects. Johnson. Yeah. Wait, he, what was it? Caleb Mid-tex? Johnson. That's the name of the firm? Yeah, Caleb Johnson Architects, Caleb Johnson Studio. They've gone through a couple different uh, branding kind of takes on it because at the same time, he's trying to start a business that you know, becomes a business that can, uh, self itself with, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, self, yeah. you know, sustain itself if he were not even present. So he right. doesn't want to hinge the whole thing on just this single, you know? Yeah. That's um, what they don't tell you in architecture school is that you are essentially a waiter. Uh, it is a service industry. Yep. Um, you quit and it stops. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't carry on for you. So, um, you know, we started engaging in development and investing in the projects that we're involved in. And that's actually been wonderful to generate income back uh, to us and the company itself to keep things going. Interesting. Um, yeah, that, that, that's been the path, because I think at a certain point in your life, you realize, oh, I can't do this for my whole life. I have to find a place where I can stop. And architecture is not, not securing, you know, enough wealth that I can take 20 years of my life off. Right. Um, you know, I'm not going to survive. So it is about... Uh, proper investments and in the field of architecture development is is an obvious investment and we've been lucky we've been pretty successful we found a few companies and developments to invest in and um, similar I think obviously to Caleb he's he's creating whether it's a furniture line or a product line or a type of service that doesn't have to have him involved that, that's something we're looking and investigating as well I asked because I had a friend um, who went to Michigan and started out of Cyark and st- worked on a design build company that generated into architecture and started doing stadiums and hotels and clubs, but I don't remember the name. So I'm going to look it up and see if, if it's the mm-hmm. same one um, out of, yeah, out of De- Detroit. Where, where did, did you go to school in Ann Arbor? Uh, I went to school in the Southwest part of Michigan, uh, about 20 minutes North of Notre Dame. 
So oh, I'll, I'll, right. I'll list a known school to <laughs> orient you to my unknown school. What is your unknown school? Andrews University. It's, Andrews, uh, okay. Yeah, it's it's no name, you know, little little school, but it, it had a really good, uh, they had an incredible architectural uh, professor there my first three years, uh, Arpad Ronasegi, who I think is at, in Atlanta now uh, at the the art college there, but he was, he was a very passionate, um, like, you know, he was all over Renzo piano and yeah. the, the mixing of all these different, even just mediums to express your design as far as using a computer to manipulate hand sketch things. And, and the, just the passion that he had for, for everything and, and, and designing new rather than, um, Repeating you know, then, or, yeah. yeah, we had these other professors that would be very dedicated to arts and crafts or uh, classical, you know, and right. it's just right. a repetition of these things, which to me felt like, you know, drawing with a stencil a little more right. so, yeah. which works. And, you know, you get a lot more failures when you're not using a stencil. So, right. yeah, yeah, but some degree, but I'd rather take the risk and, and do it that way. And that interest and passion was always just something that it just ignites other fires. And it's really yeah. interesting. That, that was a great thing about Cyrk. We had that similar thing. Uh, Michael Rotundi for me was the the one, the first initial morphosis. I had him for a couple studios, and that that passion that fell. I mean, it's just it's it's infectious, hmm. you know. Um, and it's just so much fun to create around someone like that and be able to ask questions. So yeah, I agree. Right. That, that kind of thing can drive you forward. And a, a more uh, a less design oriented question to wrap this out. Uh, do you surf? I do. Yeah. I do. I'm not. I'm not great. I surfed in my 20s and then I stopped. I, I'm a basketball player. That's my number uh, one sport. Okay. Uh, I played in China for a bit. Um, oh, really? I have. Yeah. I, I was. A, it was definitely a, a bucket list item. I. I, I had stopped playing uh, college. I played some three on three stuff. Won a few tournaments and then. Someone asked me for a tryout, and I absolutely dominated the tryout and got invited to go play in China for about six weeks, which, you know, got paid to play basketball. That was heaven. But uh-huh. during the pandemic, um, uh, I, I met a girl, and, and we started dating, and she's an avid surfer. Uh, and so I started to pick it up and, and get out there and surf. And what's beautiful is my house in Mexico is right on a surf break. Um, oh, no. And literally, <laughs> I step out of my house, down the stairs, into the water, four people on the wave, maybe two people typically, and it's a 40 second wave. So you catch it and you ride it all the way down the bay and you got to walk back and it's just, it's beautiful. So I've always been a water boy. I love being in the water from Maine to California. Normally it was body surfing, surfing in my twenties, but now I picked it up again and I'm in love. I'm just, it's so uh, meditative to be out there. It's really enjoyable. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. When you uh, mentioned going down to Baja, I was like, hmm, he must surf. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, uh, do you surf? Do you ever surf in Baja? You said you surfed before. Oh, yeah. You're that's, out in Ventura my... every once in a while. <laughs> that's that's kind of why I do everything that I do, probably. <laughs> it's, so you it's can that surf? deep of a... Yeah. Wow. Pretty much. <laughs> Well then, but I mean, next time it, you're out here, hit me up. Let's. I'd be glad to take you down there. This wave is is uh, it's super special. Um, it's like the how, wave at Sunset in Malibu, Mexico, or are you in Baja? No, I'm in Baja. It's three hours south of the border. So you got to drive to the border, and then from the border down, it's three hours. Um, yeah, we, but it's I it's did all a trip into Baja where we went. We went by Salsa Puertas. We went by San Miguel. We went by Porto. 
and we probably got close to three hours into Baja before we... Did you get to Cuatro's Casas? Doesn't sound familiar. All right. Well, uh, I mean, I'm just telling you, when you're here, hit me up. We go on surf trips all the time. It's about 40 homes aligning this gated area. It's on a point and everybody in those homes surfs. And so, yeah. you, but you never seem to get them all down at the same time. So you have these That's wonderful nice. old school surfers. It's longboarding waves. They don't barrel. They just, uh, they, they have a beautiful soft crumble break. They're big enough that at times I can drop in and you can only see my head and I'm 6'5". So they're good shaped, good sized. And they're just a really just beautiful experience to be out there. So yeah, wow. by all means, let's go. Otherwise, I'll come up to you and we'll go to Rincon because I haven't surfed that oh, yeah. yet. And that looks spectacular. Uh, yeah, we, we, we first would go to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Um, because oh, wow. We had, we had a friend from California that owned a house on the Outer Banks. And during February, no one would rent it. So he'd be like, <laughs> yeah, you can, you can rent the house for the utilities. So right. to go from Maine to the Outer Banks in North Carolina in February was a treat. But the last year we went there, like the pipes froze. It, it was horrible, like as far as the weather. And so we were like, right. we're making a little bit more money. Maybe we could, you know, save all year and get enough to like get plane tickets for all. And we could just spend the month in California. Wouldn't that be great? And so we started doing that. And uh, I have a friend who owns and lives on a boat in Ventura Harbor. And I'd been out there. And Sea Street is just a really, really fun little wave for yeah. kids to learn on. And my boys yeah. have learned on that wave. And then there's a lot of other spots like Rincon, but also some really powerful beach breaks that you just have everything in that area and just a lot right. less people than L.A. So we're, we're from where we stand, Ventura, we're about. 10 15 minute drive from from Rincon from so Rincon wow anytime between the middle of uh January and uh early March if if you feel like doing Rincon hit me up and we'll uh we'll you go got up it. there and it and it'll be crowded and you'll maybe get one wave <laughs> well the the great thing about Mexico uh is I take my boys down and there's a group of other kids down there oh, nice. and you know between the dads and moms surfing and the kids just basically running around. It's an incredible place. One of my friends has a home down there. It's how I found out about it. He actually, um, during the pandemic, moved there for three months yeah. and ran his whole business through the internet and just you know, surfed and, and, had, and hung out with his kids. And they went to school on a Zoom. So maybe not this year, but maybe next year, instead of Ventura, you might want to consider Baja. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty spectacular. So oh, yeah. we'll, we'll, I, we'll find our way Baja. down. Yeah, I just met a guy. We were out camping in the White Mountains, and we were at this ah, train trestle bridge. <laughs> and we were we were on a train trestle bridge, and all of a sudden, these three people show up because they knew the train was coming. We didn't know it was coming. He's like, oh, okay. And this one guy set up, and he had a drone and a camera and everything else. And I got talking to him, and he's a programmer from San Francisco, but he can be anywhere. As long oh, as he wow. keeps an apartment in San Francisco, he'll get San Francisco pay. And he can leave for extended amounts of time as long as he's available for business hours for three hours during business hours. Wow. So, you know, I was like to my son, I was like, Simon, see, this is what I was telling you about. If you know how to code, <laughs> you're always going to have work if you start there. You know, and, right. and this right. guy was just out hiking and, and enjoying life and then worked when he, you know, needed work. And he did that. three hours at the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Anyway, it's been really uh, interesting talking to you. I really appreciated your insight and, and the cross-pollination of, of artistry, creativity, and, and how you've worked that into your business and how successful Thank you've you. been. I really want to see how this wall in uh, Detroit <laughs> turns out. I hope you do it. That would be 
a really I'd go higher than four feet personally because you just really? more you'd farm more art, you know? That's true. You you could do the whole art, you could do the whole wall and then just cut it up into pieces and sell it. That's it's just a, that, that's it, or show it at a museum, like lift it yeah. out of the ground and show it. Yep. Yeah, yep. like like No, I believe me, it's it's Detroit. there. Yeah. yeah, somewhere in Detroit, you cut the wall up and then it's on the walls in Detroit as like here's lo- here's actual local art, you know. But right. Yeah, that'd be interesting. <laughs> and just exit through the gift shop, you'll be fine. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Tima Bell, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. We'll cut and see you later. All right. See you later.